Uh, last week, last week, uh, Rick Rubel, our lead pastor, kicked off a series that I'm super excited about called Taste It. We get this cool board every week. You're going to see that. That changes. We got some cool uh, folks who have come in during the week and making that look good. And, and, and really, this whole idea of, um, of Taste It, uh, Rick opened up with uh, his very sad, depressing terrible story of not having Mexican food until later in life. And so I guess if you're from Ohio, it's sad. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know. I drove through it once. I don't know. Well, it was interesting when he was telling that story last week about not having Mexican food until later in life and then like opened a whole new world of culinary delights for him. I was thinking that, that I had such a different experience because I grew up in California. And in the area of California we grew up in, like, uh, well, Mexican food was plentiful. We didn't really even call it Mexican food. We just called it food. And so, like, I grew up eating it, and I love Mexican food. It's one of my favorite, favorite uh, types of foods. Again, we just called it food. But, but I absolutely love it, and I've had it a zillion times. And what's interesting about it is I've never gotten tired of Mexican food. Like, if someone says, hey, you want Mexican food? I'm like, oh, no, I've already had that three times today. No, no, I'll go four, five. It don't matter. All right? There's always room for... Mexican food. And so, and so I was thinking about that last week and I was thinking, you know, uh, the same is true of the Bible. Like however long you've been involved in this, this thing, this, this Christ follower, Christianity, church, uh, however long you've spent time with this, this book, this thing that we call the Bible, like, like it, it is truth that you should never get tired of it because it's not a tiresome Book. Matter of fact, the longer you live, you have these different experiences in life and different perspectives, and you can read the same verse you've read a thousand times, and you'll get this new, fresh insight because of who you are as a person. As we grow as people in our life experience changes, we come to the scriptures again, the Bible, and we're like, oh... <laughs> right? That's just a really cool, cool thing. I don't know that every week we're going to try and relate the Bible to Mexican food, but we'll see if we do, uh, if that's true or not. But I just, I just think of the fact that we never get tired of, of tasting it. Now, uh, uh, we, we issued a challenge last week that, that we as a team, North Point, we're going to take on, which is this idea of reading through the Bible in 90 days. I, and I know a number of you did that. My family and I are doing that. You, you probably downloaded that version app and, and punched away with that 90-day reading plan. And, and my guess is that you did pretty well this week. That's my hunch, if I had to bet, because you read Genesis and Exodus. Genesis and Exodus, full of some really uh, cool, cool stories. So you did well this week. In Genesis and Exodus, we have adventure and intrigue and battles and death and sex and life and romance and suspense and all kinds of stuff that makes for great literature. So we read those stories, and, and, and yeah, it was like, you know, 25 chapters a day or so, but you're like, ah, this is, this is kind of cool stuff. I didn't know that was in there. And so if you've ever read through the Bible before, my hunch is that you did real well with Genesis and Exodus, and then you begin to bog down. (laughs) Some of us have done this, right? And you begin to bog down right where we are today, and because we're hypercharging this read through the Bible in 90 days thing, like it's only been a week, and now we enter into the week where most, not all, some people, a little, uh, maybe you're like riveted by what's coming next, but for the stereotype, the average, this is where, we bog down right at Leviticus and Numbers. You're like, oh, I didn't even know how that was pronounced, right? Leviticus and Numbers. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Aren't we excited? We are going to read through the whole book of Leviticus. I can make anything excited. No, well, this is really exciting, actually. This is riveting stuff. These are a couple of my favorite books of the Bible, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So if we give you uh, 20 minutes, what I want to kind of talk through is why do we bog down at this point? Like, I think it's for really good reasons, by the way. 
Like, I think it's legit why we bog down at this point and we're like, oh my gosh, there's so many rules and there's all these names and the numbers and I don't care. And I want to say, there's probably a really good reason we don't care. (laughs) We'll talk about it. Give me 20 minutes. We'll see if we can put that together. If we were to overview all of Leviticus uh, and numbers, I want us to understand that we're talking about something that was written about, written in the 15th century B.C., That's a long time ago. Think about what you know from world history, if you remember back to world history. Like what was going on in the planet in the in the 1400s BC? Like what what was known? What was happening? I'm not telling you because I don't know. But I'm just saying, whatever you remember from school, whatever you remember from the history channel, like what was going on back then? And then we get to this book that we call Leviticus, and they were talking the 15th century BC, 1445, 1440, 1400s, somewhere in there. And we hit Leviticus, and it's all about rules. It's all about rules. And whenever I say it's all about rules, we all go, yay. Right? Because we've, we've been groomed on this concept that Jesus is all about relationship and not the rules. And that's, that's, that's true. I would make that statement. However, that's here. And Leviticus is here. And what, what's going on? Why did God, like, write this whole book of rules? And does it matter? And do we care? And what's going, and, and when we understand kind of what's happening in the history, it makes perfect sense that God would put this book together. It's all about rules. I, I don't know. If you're like me, you're probably not, and that's safe. But, but if you're like me, have you ever read, like, those warning labels on the back of products? You ever read those? You ever check those out? You got to check those out. They're, there's, like, some stuff on those things. Like, like, on the back of products, they have these weird rules. Or, like, sometimes when you go into places like parks or whatever, they'll have really strange signs with these rules on there. And, I, and I've often wondered, like, who thought that needed to be stated? And I'm 44 now, and I've realized, oh, it has to be stated because some idiot tried to do it, and they probably died. And then there was a lawsuit. So, so like, those rules that are on the back, those warning labels that are back, I'm looking at a couple of my EMTs over here, they're like, yep, that was my week. Right? But on the back of products, those warning labels are there because somebody, like, did that. Those weren't just made up. No one just thought, like, hey, this should be fun. Let's write this down. Like, someone tried to do that, and there was, like, injury that occurred. They're like, got to write another rule, Larry. Get those tags back out. So I found a couple this week just because I want this to be in our head. Here's the first one I saw. I thought it was funny. My uh, youngest daughter, Danielle, is trying to figure out uh, college. She's thinking about Calvin College is uh, on the top of the list. And so she's thinking about that. And she was walking through the uh, dorm rules for Christian. This is a Christian college. Folks, this is college. These are where smart people go. I don't know, right? These aren't like 14-year-old kids. You're already reading it, right? These aren't like 14-year-olds. These are like like 20-year-old student, and they're paying to be there, right? And this is in the dorm rules of the things they're not allowed to do. It says use or possession of other weapons. Now, I'm with them. I, I'm tracking, including switchblades. I'm, I'm there. Paintball guns. Potato launchers. Why? Why a potato launcher? Well, you know why a potato launcher, right? Because some years ago, and I, I absolutely convinced it was some in the boys' dorm. It was a boy. I'm absolutely, I'll fight you on that. I'm absolutely convinced it was a boys' dorm that said, hey, hey, Bucky, I got a tube and some hairspray and a lot. And I won't list any more ingredients because right now there's some high schoolers writing those down. Say those again. What are they? Well, you can Google it. Don't Google it. I'm just kidding. It's not on the internet. The point is, somebody, right, like sent a potato through a window, and now they have to write down, you can't have potato launchers at, okay, here's the second one. I thought this was pretty amazing. This warning label, it says, do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. (laughs) This is on a chainsaw. 
which I have so many questions. Like if you're reading the warning label on the chainsaw while you're probably too late, right? But, but why do they put that? Because somebody was like, <laughs> like, you know, someone did that, right? I mean, that's why they put that. All right, here's the, here's the third one I found. Just trying to go across the span here. This is on a hairdryer. Blew it up a little bit so you can see it. It says, don't use while sleeping. And you're like, that sounds so dumb. Why would someone have to tell someone not to use that? Was Because somebody, some person, no gender, said, some person said, hey, I have a great idea. I'll just leave this on all night and I'll wake up with lustrous hair. And they burnt down the neighborhood, right? So like, okay, don't use it while sleeping. And someone in a factory somewhere that's making these labels is like, seriously, right? All right, here's the fourth one I found. Yeah, you can read that one. It's not a coat hanger. Now, where don't swallow? Who, who is that for? Like, is that for like sword swallowers? Like, hey, this is for you guys, for that small niche group out there, that subculture of people that swallow. Wow, swallow? Swords for a living. Like, don't do it with a coat. I don't know. Okay, here's the fifth one I found. This one actually might be kind of helpful. This is on a pair of wire strippers. You may not be able to see that, but actually etched into the steel there, it says, do not use on live wires. Now, you laugh, but that warning is for someone like me who has a lot less experience with electrical and like, like you will get hurt if you don't turn off the power. I don't turn off the power, right? So I'm just saying, now some of you guys are like, I do that all the time. I'm just saying the warning is on there for you. Okay, here's the sixth one. Uh, this is actually on uh, packaging for an iron. Don't iron while wearing shirt. Again, a lot of questions. So you can iron your pants. Well, don't go there. I think the idea is... Don't iron your clothing while it's on your body. And again, it's because someone did that or someone asked that question. Maybe it was an email to customer service. Got a question for you. I'm a real busy guy (laughs) and I really want to iron my shirt. While I I can do that, right? And then the customer service is sharing that email with everybody in the cubicles around. Hey, look at this, Betty. This guy. (laughs) And they wrote back, yeah, absolutely no problem. And then somebody in management was like, no, we're going to get sued. You got to say no. We'll put a warning label on it. Are you tracking with me? We're having some fun with this. This last one, I, I think this last one's a joke. I hope it's a joke. I mean, it's a real sign. I hope they're just kidding. This is a case of fire exit building before tweeting about it. So if we do have a fire here at North Point, I'd ask you guys, please exit before you live stream that, okay? Live stream away, but get out of the building first. Uh, why? We laugh at this, right? But we know somewhere deep down that, that there, there's a reason that these rules were put out there. There's a reason that these warning labels have to go out, and it's, it's because people, <laughs> Right? And so, so Leviticus, very similar. Leviticus, same thing. Like, you've got this, this whole situation going where you've got this holy, righteous, perfect God that decides to have this relationship with this very specific people. He wanted to have a relationship with this group that, that we call Israel or the Jews or Hebrews. They've got some names, right? Hebrews, Jews, Israel. God wants to have this relationship with them. And so he picks a person, Abraham, and he says, Hey, Abraham, I want to have a relationship with you and everybody that comes after you. from your family line, we're going to call you Jews, Israelites, Hebrews. I'm going to have this relationship with you. And Abraham says, cool. And so God is developing this relationship with this very specific people in a very specific time. We're talking 15th century BC, 1440, 1400s, somewhere in there. Again, what, what was known then? 
What, what did people understand? How, how much science did they really have under their belt? What did they really know about human health and nutrition and food prep? And, and what kind of technology was going on back in the day? Was it, was it tablet and chisel? Was it, was it uh, uh, vellum and, and pen? I mean, you think about what was going on then. you got this holy, perfect God who wants to have uh, a relationship with a specific people in a specific time. And, and these people, these people that God's going to relate to, they are right out of 400 years of slavery. Like Israel had just gotten, I mean, if you're at Genesis and Exodus, Exodus ends, they leave slavery. They've been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, like every decision that had been made for them. They weren't a free people. Every moment of their day was prescribed. And all of a sudden, over the course of some time, a few days, boom, they're free and they're roaming out in the desert. Like, what do they do? Like, like, what do they do? Like, before when they were in slavery and their, and their t-shirt was all gross and moldy and stuff, and they're like, well, I guess we just wear it, because they were slaves. <laughs> they didn't have any options. I don't know. But all of a sudden, they're free now, and there's this holy, perfect God who wants to have this specific relationship with the specific people in a specific time, and they're just, they're just right out of slavery. They're just lost. What on the planet does this look like? How do you even begin to step into that new life of freedom. See, it's interesting because sometimes when we read Leviticus and we start thinking, oh man, this God, he's just all about rules. He's just trying to suck everyone's fun out. Like you can't eat shrimp and you have to have hair and you got to wear a robe. And I don't, I don't, just God's just like, oh, what a drag. And that's one way to look at it. But I think if we understand the concept, we think, man, what a good God who would get down into the weeds for a people who haven't made a decision in 400 years for themselves. And then you think about the people that God's specifically talking to in, in Leviticus, and like, like nobody, for 400 years, nobody in that current situation had experienced anything other than slavery. 400 years. Five, six generations of people. That's all they knew for four and five and six generations back. What a good God who would come alongside and say, hey, you know what? Let me tell you why you shouldn't eat some of these things. Scorpion's bad, <laughs> Right? Yeah. grains, good, <laughs> right? Like God begins to lay out these, these rules, these expectations, this idea, because this God cares so much about this people that he wants to relate to. Okay, so here's what I'd like to do. If you have uh, the North Point app open, that's cool. There's some fill-ins in there, and you may want to use that. If you have a paper Bible, like a hard a pr- a print Bible, this will be easier. You can do it electronically, but it's easier if you do it with paper. I want you to find the book of Leviticus. So little motion going on. This reminds me of my junior high days. Junior high youth pastors. Pull out your Bible and they go, oh. All right, pull out the Bible. I want to walk through the entire book of Leviticus. Ready? I know, I know. I promise. It'll be riveting. This is going to be amazing. You're going to love it. Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. That third book in the Bible. It's this idea of rules. And, and right at the beginning, we start to see what God is putting together here. I promise we're going to do it quick. We're going to have a lot of fun with it. Look at this. If you can see it, it's easier in paper. But if you have electronic, you'll get it there. And what I'm wanting to look at is I just want to look at these things that we call subheadings. You know what I'm talking about? It's like these chapter divisions, not the number necessarily, all that's important, but these little lines that happen in bold above some of the paragraphs. Those aren't inspired by God. That's not like God's words, right? His words are the other stuff that's in there. Those are just the way that some interpreter translator has tried to help us organize it so we can kind of figure out our place and whatever. And they do these little summaries. I'm not advocating that's all you should read. When you read the Bible, but I'm advocating for the next few minutes. That's all we're going to read. Or most of what we're going to read in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1, right? You see what it, it jumps right off, right? The burnt offering, you see that, right? Chapter 2, the grain offering. Chapter 3, the fellowship offering. Chapter 4, the 
Sin offering. Chapter 5, we went a little through, and it says the guilt, what? Offering. And we get to the rest of chapter 6, it says the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering. Chapter 7, it says the guilt, what? Okay, so offerings are apparently a big deal. Right? So we get to chapter 7, and it talks about offering. Chapter End of chapter 7, it's talking about priests. We get into chapter 8, and there's some names. Chapter 9, it says priests. So all of a sudden, there's this concept of offerings and priests. God's putting together this system of what it looks like to relate to him because God understood that people were going to make mistakes and blow it, and so he sent this, 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 created this system of offering some animal, some grain, to keep in right relationship with God, and God did this over and over again. So we get to chapter 10. There's a couple of names, whatever. And then we get to chapter 11, and it says clean and unclean food, like what you can and can't eat. You're going to love reading through that when you get bored while I'm talking. Just start reading through that. I'll tell you, you can't eat shrimp. That's cool. And pork's probably a bad idea. But beef's cool, and lamb you're going to be okay with. So we get to chapter 12, and it says purification after childbirth. Because now they're having babies, and they're like, well, so is that cool? Like, we just, like, have a baby and pop right back at a church? Is that an okay thing? Like, do we just hang out? Like, what do we do with that? Chapter 13, this is riveting. Regulations about defiling skin diseases. I know, it's awesome, right? Like like this group of people that have been slaves for 400 years are now living life and like apparently they're getting some rashes and they're like, so what do we do? Like we live in a culture today where like they actually will quarantine you for certain diseases, right? This is a group of people, that's, that's foreign to them. They're like, what do we do? And so God writes some rules about it. Chapter second half of 13, it says regulations about defiling molds. I know, super exciting. You go clean your teenager's room. You find that t-shirt. You know that t-shirt, the one that's been under forever. And then you're like, what do you do with it? Right? They don't know. Chapter 14, oh, there's a way to get cleansed from defiling skin diseases. Halfway through 14, cleansing from defiling molds. Chapter 15, discharges causing uncleanliness. Read it on your own. Chapter 16, Day of Atonement. You got that right. Chapter 17, eating blood forbidden. Hey, guys, you probably should need blood. It's not really healthy for you. And he goes on to describe that. Chapter 18, unlawful sexual relations. Who can you sleep with? That's an important question. Chapter 19, it says various laws. Let's dial it down for a second. Do you need a breath? We're good? Okay. Chapter 19. Look at verse 3. It says, Each of you must respect your mother and father. You must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like those Ten Commandments, because it is. Right? Those Ten Commandments are contained within these, these laws. These laws are 613 laws. Ten of those are what we call the Ten Commandments. The other 603, I had to do math in my head. It was rough. The other 603 are all those other kinds of things about all these other kinds of things. Jump down to verse 11. It says, do not steal. That seems like a pretty good rule, doesn't it? This group of Israelites who are now hanging out, fresh out of slavery, trying to figure out how to relate to this holy God. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't deceive one another. Verse 12, don't swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of the Lord your God. Verse 13, don't defraud or rob your neighbor. Right? 14, don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. What an interesting, very specific people group that all of a sudden he kind of dials in on. Right? Don't pervert justice. Verse 15, verse 16, don't go about spreading slander among your people. Don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Verse 17, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Verse 18, don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Verse 19, keep my decrees. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Right? Don't plant your fields with two kinds of seed. Why not? There's probably a really good reason for it. We're just going to keep going. Don't wear clothes woven of two kinds of materials. So we get all these rules that are thrown together. Some really big overarching things like don't steal. <laughs> That's a big deal, right? Coupled right with, don't wear the 50-50 cotton polyester blend, right? And it's all thrown together, and we're reading this, and we're like, wait, what? Am I not supposed to do that? What, what's going on? Chapter 20, punishment for sin, right? Verse 20, chapter 21, it talks about priests in 22, and then we get to chapter 23, and it says this, hey, you should have some parties, 
I know yours probably says the appointed festivals. But what it really means is you should have some parties. So God's laying out all these rules to healthy living and what it looks like to relate to him. And in that, he says, you know what? And there's parties too. And so he goes, let me tell you about seven of them. And so he lays out some of these parties of Sabbath and weeks and tabernacles and chapter 25, the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. And we get to chapter 26. And chapter 26 is super great because it's like the summary of everything that just happened. And in chapter 26, verse 3, he says this. He says, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send rain in its season and the ground will yield its crop and the trees uh, will bear fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest. The grape harvest will continue until planting. And you'll eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. Super simple concept. God says, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. That, that's, that's, that's the whole of Leviticus. It's all these rules and laws and expectations. And, and if you do this, do this. And, and if you don't, but, but if you obey me, you'll be blessed. And then he goes on in verse 14, and he says this of chapter 26. God says, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out my commandments and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases, fever that will destroy your sight, sap your strength. You'll plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I'll set my face against you so you'll be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you'll flee even when no one is pursuing you. You get the idea there? Disobedience will equal punishment. So God's real clear. You obey all these things I'm telling you and you'll be blessed. And disobey, choose to disobey, and, and you're going to be punished. Now, Pause for a second, and let me, let me come over here. We'll call this an aside. We'll go way to the side. Because this context of obedience equals blessing and disobedience equals punished is the backdrop that we will enter in eventually into the New Testament. Eventually, Jesus comes on the scene, and we'll deal with a people group that we love to hate. They're called the Pharisees. Are you kind of with me? And it's interesting because we, we, we make them the bad guys and the enemies very often. But those Pharisees are this group of people a few hundred years later trying to figure out when God said, obey, and I get blessed, disobey, and there's punishment, what do we do with that? And so what, what happens for the rest of Scripture? After we read Leviticus, we're going to go on, we're going to see this revolving cycle where, where Israel obeys and they're blessed, and then they disobey, and then a nation comes in and conquers them, and they're cursed, and they hate life, and they cry out to God. And so he comes and he rescues them, and then they're blessed again because they're obeying him. And that happens for like three days, and then all of a sudden they disobey God, they choose to disobey, and another nation comes in and conquers them, and life stinks for them, they're in captivity, and they cry out to God, and then God saves them again. And so all of a sudden they're obeying God. You see this cycle? This will be the continual cycle. Enter in eventually in the New Testament. These Pharisees who have seen that cycle for a, a thousand years going, all we got to do is obey. And so they have all the rules written out. And they're so afraid to break the rules that they make rules so that they don't even get near breaking the rules. And then they make rules outside here. If they don't break these rules, then they won't break these rules, and they won't break these rules. And so we get this group of people who are all about trying to obey the law and obey God because God said so. And they miss one very important thing. And what they miss, it's heartbreaking. The thing that they miss is so important to all of this conversation. 
And we'll get there in a couple of minutes of what we're talking about, of what they're going to miss. So Leviticus is this, is this book about rules and, and what it looks like to live with this very specific people living with this very holy God. And so the, while Leviticus is that detailed book, Numbers, the next book, picks up with the really practical stuff, like taking a census. They keep counting the number of people they have and figuring out where to live and how that's going to get divided up. They got like a million Jews right out of slavery trying to figure out how to live together. Do we all live in one tent? Like, do we just line up next to each other? Or do we have, like, different spaces? Or how does this look? And God says, hey, this is your land. And they're like, cool, do we stay in the middle? Do we go to the edge? I mean, there's all these really practical questions of what that looks like. And so God writes this out in this book that we call Numbers. And it's called Numbers because in the beginning and then right towards the end, they have this big census where they count how many people. And as you read the book, maybe you made it through Leviticus because you're like me. And there's enough weird stuff in there that it keeps you interested. And then you hit Numbers and right away they start telling you how many thousands of people are in the tribe of Dan. And you're like, I don't care. Because it's boring. It feels boring. We read these genealogies. We read these, 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 these numbers, these, these lists of people. And it's all about this very specific people living in a very specific time with a holy God. And it's where we often bog down because we don't care about the list of names. And we don't really care about all those numberings and where to set up the camp and a bunch of really specific stuff. Don't get me wrong. There's some interesting stories in there. There's a story about a statue that, they, that people are getting bit by snakes and they start dying. They got to look to the statue to get healed. Super weird. There's a talking donkey. Super weird, right? There's a bunch of battles that go on. But there's also tons of boring details. And I don't think we should lie it's sometimes boring. And that's why we bog down in it. And we're like, oh man, I tried this through the Bible thing. I can't do it. I can't get through numbers. And I'm just, I know it's weird for a pastor to stand in the front and it's on video. So now everybody will see it online and I can't even like, you know, disavow it. That that numbers is boring. Parts of it. But, But it's boring partly because it's not for us. But numbers was like the 23 and me of the day. You know what I mean? 23andMe, these ancestry things. So like if you go and you get your, your ancestry thing done, you fill out the 23andMe, you swab your and you send it away and you get back. And you find out you're like one-tenth Latvian. I don't know what that is, but it's a thing, right? You're like one-tenth Latvian and you're like super excited. You're like, woo, I'm Latvian. And so you go out and you buy Latvian clothes and you invite all your friends over because you're going to like feed them this authentic Latvian meal. Anybody know what that is? You yeah, mean either. Uh, and, and, but you're going to do it, and it's super exciting. You're just like, and your friends come over because they love you and stuff, but they don't care <laughs> that you're lot. I mean, right? That's cool. Like for 30 seconds, the hors d'oeuvres are good, but like, I don't, I don't really. But you care. That matters to you. You frame that 23 and me thing, and it's up on your wall, and you're wearing the Latvian outfit, and you're marching around playing Latvian instruments. I have no idea what any of this is. But, but it matters to you because it's your people, it's your family, it's your heritage. Are you tracking with me? For the folks who read Numbers back in the day in that 15th century BC and going forward for Jews who talk about their historicity because it's so important, it was vital. Like that mattered to them. That family album you have of pictures and the letters from your your great-grandpa who sent it back to his, his wife in World War, whatever, and you kept those and you guys read those and it's like you think that's great and it is great for you. And if you have a bunch of acquaintances over and you're like, hey, read these letters. If they're history buffs, they're like, oh, that's that's cool. But it doesn't mean the same to them. Like numbers is like the family album for these Jews and it just matters to them. It It is boring when we read it. The tribe of Dan had 10,000 people, and the tribe of Manasseh had 14,000 people, and they were going to set up camp on the eastern side of the western ski board. Who? I don't, okay. Right? I mean, I'm just being honest. But we read it, we understand it mattered a ton to the Jews in 1440-ish B.C. So here's 
we'll, the, the question and how we'll finish today. The idea being, if it's boring, and if it was written for and about a specific people in a specific time for a specific purpose, and we are not those specific people because none of us are Jewish, I don't think, and, and we're not in that specific time and it's a different purpose, then why even bother reading it? That's a, that's a legitimate question, right? And, and I would suggest there's lots of great reasons to read Leviticus and Numbers and spend some time in it. Maybe you're not going to do your daily devotions there. Maybe you are. Maybe you're going to read it a little more quickly until you find some parts that really intrigue you and then you slow down a bit, but then you pick back up and read more of the subheadings. Let me give you some, some big picture. Here's what I'd say. Why is it important? Because it reveals the heart of God. And I'd make the argument that it reveals the heart of God like no other book does. No other biblical book. Where else does God get down into the weeds as much as he does in Leviticus? In other words, here's four things that I think it reveals about God's heart, that I think it makes it worth reading Leviticus and Numbers, and it's certainly part of why we should be dealing with it today. Here's number one. It shows us God cares about the details. God cares about the details. If God cares what you do with your teenager's moldy (laughs) T-shirt... He cares about the small stuff. This is interesting for me because I struggle with this. I just, I just shooting straight with you. I struggle with this sometimes. I, there are, there are uh, men and women who are way more spiritual than I am, and they talk about how like they roll into the mall and they pray for a good parking spot, and God gives it to them. And I hear that, and I think that's stupid. <laughs> like God doesn't care about what. And you read Leviticus, and you're like, okay, if He cares about toe fungus, I guess He cares about part. And that's really, really rich, isn't it? God cares about the details because some of our lives are made up of big, important details. And and a lot of our lives are made up of thousands and thousands of really small, mundane details. And yet God cares about those details. If God was willing to get specific about not eating uncooked meat and staying away from shrimp to a culture that didn't have lots of sanitation options or know-how of cleaning certain animals... God cares about our physical health. Now, I don't think that means we don't eat shrimp and you can't eat uncooked meat, although that's weird, but you do what you got to do. Because, because those laws that are contained in Leviticus, we'll talk about in a second of why I don't think that we have to uh, try and fulfill those any longer. But because God cared about that stuff, I think that same God is the same today and he cares about stuff. So he, he cared about their physical health and said, it's probably not good to eat like, you know, raw stuff, dude. And they're like, okay. And God still cares about physical health. Is this making sense? He cares about the details. He's a God of details. Here's the second thing I think it tells us about God's character, that it reveals God's holy nature. God's holy. Sometimes we get this picture in our head that God's like this cute old hard-of-hearing grandpa, that like like you're just a mess and and totally being a mischievous little child. And he's like, that's so adorable. (laughs) Come sit on my lap, you little horrible child. (laughs) Sometimes we get this picture of God. And when we read Leviticus and Numbers, that is that is not God. God is not okay with sin. God is not okay with, oh, you just come to me however you want, whenever you feel like it. It doesn't matter. It matters. Like, it matters. Like, God had set up a very specific way that people, Jews in, in 15th century B.C., had to relate to God. A very specific way. That was it. Now, I think that way is very different. We'll talk about that in a second. But I think God still has a very specific way that we relate to him. He's not just the grandpa that pats us on the head when we keep screwing up. And he's like, oh, it's fine. It's not fine. Like, like God is holy, and that matters. Here's the third thing I think it reveals is that God likes systems and organization. Now, I don't, I'm just being honest. I, uh, do I see this because I'm an 
a systems guy, and so I see this readily? Or is there deep truth to this? I think there's deep truth to this. And I think there's great comfort in this. Because it means that God isn't willy-nilly, you know that phrase? Or capricious. It's not like God just sort of threw it out there and said, figure it out. Figure it out, kids. Like he sets up these systems and, he, and there's organization. That's, that's really comforting to me because it means that we never have to wonder where we stand with God. You know, some of our, our, our other uh, folks who, who subscribe, to, uh, subscribe to different religions, they have a different view of their God who's very capricious or very willy-nilly and from day to day they don't know if they're in his favor or out of his favor or like when they die if they're going to make it to heaven or not make it to heaven because God just sort of does whatever he wants to do. And that is not the description we see of God throughout the Bible, especially Leviticus and Numbers. Like he creates these systems of organization, of authority, of, of government, of rules, of, of, of things that are supposed to help us live in healthy, good ways. He, here's the most important component is the fourth one, I, I think. I mean, they're all important, but here's the fourth one. I think it's the most important component because the system that God created of these very specific people at this very specific time relating to a specific holy God for a specific purpose, he created this system knowing that they would make mistakes and that they would blow it. They would blow these laws. They would eat the wrong thing and they would, they would do the wrong thing and they would sleep with the wrong person. They would just do all these things wrong. And so God created a system of sacrifices to make it right. He said, if, if that happens, when you blow it, when you disobey, you, you do this and that makes it right with me. And, and the problem was that that was a revolving door. It, like, never ended. Like, church would have been so weird back then because it was all about doing these sacrifices and offerings. I, I wouldn't have been a pastor because it was all about killing things and burning things, right? And so, and so you wake up on Monday, and you're, you're right with God, however that worked. And, like, and you get up in the morning, and your kid didn't put the dish in the dishwasher, and you're like, ah! And then you're, like, not right with God because you're like, oh. and so you're like, ah! So on the way to work, you got to take, like, a bird and sacrifice it at the local church. And you're like, now you're right with God. And so you're like, cool. And then you get to work, and your stupid coworker didn't do it. And you're like, ah! And you punch him. And you're like, ah! I wasn't supposed to do that. And so at lunchtime, you got to go back to church and sacrifice this other thing to get right with God. And you see this revolving door? It was constant. It was so gracious on God's part to set up a system to stay right with him. And yet, all that system did is constantly point to the fact that people can't do it on their own. Constant failure. I'll get it right, and then I fail, and then I get it right, and then I fail, and then I'll get it right with God, and then I'll fail. And, and all it reminded people of daily was this massive need for a solution to come. Some kind of solution to once and for all fix all of this stuff that I can't figure out how to do on my own, but man, I'm trying 613 laws. I'm going to follow them the best of my ability, and I can do about three of them a day, so I only have like 612 that I have to somehow atone for. And that was just Monday. And so it reminded people, man, there's got to be something better. Give us hope. And over time, they began calling this hope like salvation, like we need a Savior. And so this is maybe the most important thing of what Leviticus and Numbers, and I, I would submit a number of these Old Testament books point to, is that it all points to Jesus. It constantly highlights and reveals our need for this something better. This is what Jesus says about himself in relationship to the law in Matthew chapter 5. He says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's what they're talking about, the law. It's Leviticus, as well as those first five books that have a, uh, wrapping around the law. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. It's not like Jesus showed up on the planet and was like, yeah, that was cool for a season. We don't need that anymore. Hee-hee, <laughs> let's just party. He didn't come to abolish it. He says, I haven't come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. 
For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until, circle, underline, doggy ear the page, until everything is accomplished. And so Jesus dies on the cross, and the last thing that he utters that comes out of his mouth is, it is finished, it is accomplished, it's done. What I've set out to do is done. And he put him in a grave, and three days later he rises from the grave, showing his power over sin and death and the law and everything that came before. And so no, not, not only are we free, truly free, and, and heaven is ours, and we think, but we are no longer bound to all that old way of relating to God. Because we have this new, fulfilled way of relating to God. That's why I can wear a poly blend of cotton and polyester. <laughs> That's why I can eat shrimp. That's why I can eat pork. That's why we worship on Sundays, not Saturday. That's why we could go through 613 whys that I don't have to do because Jesus fulfilled them perfectly. And what did Jesus leave us to do? Well, I'd submit this. It's two things. It's love God and love others. This law of love is what Jesus leaves us with. It's not like he said, I left one thing unfinished. It's like he said, I left you one thing to do. 613 was a, quite a many. How about one? Love me, love people. That's a pretty cool thing. He, he, there's a pastor of a little church in Georgia named uh, North Point. They stole our name. Just kidding. His name's Andy Stanley. This is what he says about this concept. He says, while Jesus was foreshadowed in the Old Covenant, that Old Testament, he didn't come to extend it. He came to fulfill it, put a bow on it, and establish something entirely new. The new that Jesus unleashed made the faith of first century believers formidable. Their apologetic was irrefutable. Their courage unquestionable, and the results were remarkable. All that to say, Leviticus and Numbers, when we read it, may not matter a ton to us because it wasn't written for us in this time. But Leviticus and Numbers tells us a bunch about a God who loves us a ton. There's an application, a commentary called NIV Application Commentary that I use. I thought they had a beautiful summary to the, to the book of Numbers, and I just wanted to finish by reading that uh, this morning. This is what it says. It says, after a wedding, there's a marriage. That's obvious, but it's also profound. After the romance and celebration of a new permanently binding relationship with its vows and mutual fidelity, there's the rest of life. After forsaking all others to have and to hold for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, we find out what these words mean through the joys and sorrows, mistakes and successes of faulty human beings living together in an imperfect and sometimes brutally challenging world. So it was with God and Israel, those very specific people. After the wedding at Sinai, where God proclaimed covenant vows with awesome splendor, Israel said, I do. And they built a house, sanctuary, together. There was journey through the wilderness of real life. Whatever happened, they were in it together. The vows God had given were not only for Israel to keep, they were his vows too. So when he said, you shall have no other gods before me, the equivalent of forsaking all others, he not only forbade polytheism, he also pledged himself to be Israel's God. What happened after that was profoundly disturbing. While the divine groom lavished care on his bride, bringing her breakfast in bed, manna, protecting her from danger, poisonous snakes in the Sinai Peninsula, and literally hovering over her in the Shekinah cloud. She grumbled about the food. She blamed his appointed representatives when anything went wrong and kept saying she would rather return to the abusive home she had left in Egypt to find a different husband. Is there any wonder that Israel's new husband was 
nonplussed. Numbers, Leviticus, it's about rules, it's about numbers. We, we read it, we go, I don't know. But maybe this week, if you're taking the 90-day challenge, you'd read it as sort of the rest of that marriage story. We see this beautiful moment where they enter into a relationship together between God and his people, and Numbers is the brutal working out of the reality of that. And as we read it, we read it quick, but we read it with this sense that God cares so deeply about all his people. Maybe we don't have to sweat all the details in the books, but man, God cares deeply about us. Amen? If you guys would stand, we'll sing a song. We'll be done.